Hey friends, there are four generations in the workforce currently. Boomers, Generation X, Millennials and Gen Z. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking with Jared Murr, who's just written a book called From 8-Track to Emoji, all about this subject. So welcome to Vertical Playpen. My name is Phil, and let's get into the episode. Jared, we're going to start this conversation in a way that I like to do using a set of cards from a friend of mine, friend of the podcast, Jan Keck. Now, I do not know where this is going to go because this is a mystery to me as it is to you in this moment. But he has uh, these cards called Ask Deep Questions, and they come under three different categories. There's Curious Cards brave cards and vulnerable cards okay what i'm going to have you do as the guest is pick the category that you have the question you would like us to answer we'll both we'll both answer this question because i don't know what it is so would you like curious brave vulnerable well i'm a big fan of Brene brown let's go vulnerable let's just go deep let's go let's hope we don't regret it (laughs) You end up crying. (laughs) Okay. Um, What I'm going to do as well, I'm just going to go through the cards here and you just tell me to stop. I love it. Stop. Okay. This is intimidating, Phil. This is, I don't know where this is going to (laughs) go. Well, I'm looking at the answer now. (laughs) I'm looking at the question, but here we go. Okay, here we go. Who taught you how to love? Oh my gosh. I have several answers. Can I give two answers? Is that okay with you? Can I give two? Okay. My first answer is I'm pretty deeply rooted in my faith. And so I've learned a lot from God and my belief system. And the person though, who taught me that even uh, is my second answer, which is my mom. And my mom, if it's possible to love too much, she does like she sacrifices. And, you know, if you think like of Stephen Covey's, like, think win-win and like courage versus consideration. She's all consideration. Like all I'm considering everyone else above herself. But within that, I think it's because of love. It's because of this genuine concern and genuine care. And I think I, I think I've brought that into so many different areas. Uh, Specifically, I remember in high school, my friends would always like, they liked my mom more than me. Everyone loved hanging out with my mom. You know, it's like, Oh yeah, let's go to Jared's house. And my mom was always at ball games and she was always at events and everywhere. And number one, just that fact in itself that I can look back and I don't have very many memories without my mom. And the fact that she was present and aware, but then she just has this ability to make people feel like they're the most important person in that moment, that she wants to hear what you have to say. And I've tried to take those sorts of things from her into my life, that when you're in front of me, I hope that I sound like my mom. As I'm reflecting on the question and your answer is how much of what is in this answer is a direct relationship to the work we end up doing. You know, when it comes to the passion and that we we want to bring to the kind of work that comes from somewhere. There's play by Dr. Stuart Brown, and he talks about play histories. However, we played as a kid. Sometimes those passions are drawn into the work that we do in our future as a career. And I think about this with a love thing. I'm going to pick, I'm also going to pick two because I was thinking of two as you're answering it. One was, uh, this is a teacher that I had when I was a, it would be elementary school. And... She was the first person that allowed me f- to feel pure love for the art of, for reading books. So she was my English teacher. I'm a big fan of reading. 
every night I read. But she was the first person that actually made me feel okay for liking reading. I was a big nerd, still am. But I used to carry, actually, in my bag, the full, like, a leather-bound Lord of the Rings. All three books. You think of the size wow. of that, carrying that around. I've got lower back <laughs> issue, now I think that might be the reason, as a kid. Yeah. But... I, I was I was a big nerd and I was bullied at school, so I had a I had a hard time. But she was the first person that really cultivated that as being an okay thing. It's okay to love that thing. So I think that's the that's for some reason the the part that stood out to me. And then the other piece, and I'm sure you relate to this as well, is I would say my daughter has probably taught me what love actually is. I I had this moment. My brother's uh, just had a had a daughter as well, and it was reflecting with him. As soon as she was born, I felt like something different. You know, mm. like a different yeah. energy level, different uh, emotional state. And I and it still continually grows in me. So yeah. I feel like it's an experience that, yeah, I hadn't had before. So Those are great answers. You know, we I've got three kiddos. My wife and I have three children. They're now 12, 9, and 4. And I tell new parents, and they ask, well, what's it like? What You know, what should I anticipate? And here's, you know... Uh, our mutual friend actually is the first person, Nate Fullen is the first person I actually gave this answer to is I said, you know, here's how I describe it. When you have children, every emotion is heightened. Sad is sadder. Happy's happier. Like I thought though, I thought I knew what those were, but everything just becomes more vibrant, more full. Any emotion on the spectrum, I feel like I feel it more as a father than I felt it pre-fatherhood that's my best description of parenting that you're just going to start feeling things in a new way like you've never felt them before but even if you aren't a parent working with kids working with people there is something that's connected and and, and you know love is maybe too ubiquitous a word but there's definitely and even getting to know you we share a love for this work when you're in the type of work we're in you love people and you love seeing transformation you love seeing aha moments you love just seeing people grow into themselves and that's what you love. And even as a parent, that's what you get to see. You get to see your children grow into themselves. And it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. As you're speaking, Jared, I could, I could feel that passion that you have for the work that we do. What cultivated that? What in your origin led you to say, I want to get into working and facilitating in terms of leadership development? What, what kind of was your draw? Oh, my goodness gracious, Phil, you are going deep. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think... On the, I'll go deepest levels and then work my way to it because I know that you're interested and does some really good work on mapping career paths for people that are interested in the type of work that we do. You know, I think I, I too, as a as a young kid, was bullied. I was picked on a lot. Uh, I have a, a pretty fun story now that I can look back on it. But I, I say that I knew I was I knew I was heavy set because my genes proved it to me. Like, I don't know, I don't know if you had this in uh, in England, but Levi Strauss, they came in three sizes when I was a kid. It was slim, regular, and husky. And so I wore husky jeans. <laughs> and I remember having to go around and be like, yeah, you're husky, we're heavy set, uh, to my mom and my grandma. And it's like, I, I used to get picked on uh, quite a bit for that. And I think that there, if I go deep, I think that there is then this, uh, desire or need within me to help people feel included. Like I think a lot of what we do in work is about inclusion and helping people not be ostracized that we can have differing opinions and we can share those uh, in safe environments and creating safe spaces for people. So probably not to stay on this therapy couch that we've started out on, but I, I think that's probably really deep inside of me that I feel a deep like need for justice or equity 
and trying to create those spaces for people. And then on maybe the more surface level, as I got older and grew into more regular jeans instead of just the Husky jeans, man, I just loved in high school, I was involved in everything. I was really, I was the different kind of nerd. I wasn't the reading nerd like you. I was like the um, in every club kind of nerd, like, geez, Louise, this kid's in 4-H and FFA and student government and every club I was in it. And I generally was an officer in those clubs. And I noticed, and I'm thankful that I had this kind of realization as I was like, all these meetings are kind of the same. Like we go to this in this kind of the same meeting and kind of the same meeting, kind of the same meeting. And so I had a desire to diversify that just as like a junior in high school, you know, it's like I'm in one of these every day. And so I started introducing games and play and just playing stuff like, oh, let's do this. And I'm going to do even as something very simple as like a trivia contest, but just doing things where it's like, okay, and we're going to interact and do, you know, instead of just doing this meeting the same way. And then I went to a, uh, I'm from Oklahoma and we have a student council camp called basic that I went to. And that week I was like, this is it. They did. I didn't call it experiential based learning at the time, but they were very heavily experiential based in their practices. And I thought that is it. I really like this. So I think I, I somehow combined this deep seated, like inclusion, equity, helping everyone have voice with the more practical play interaction um, methodologies that I experienced. And then I just, I just took off. I just started doing it. I don't know if you have a similar story, but I didn't say I wanted to be an experiential based educator. I didn't even know those words until I'd been doing it for probably a decade, but I just wanted to do this more. And so I got connected with project adventure and, you know, used Ubuntu cards really early on, been using them for 12 years and just started using these things and meeting people and just kept loving it and still love it. So that's, that's kind of the longer version of how I got into it, but I just love teaching people through doing things. Was there anyone through this process, you talked about these steps, was there any individual individuals that kind of uh, cultivated this for you or made you realize this was actually something you could do? Uh, There are a couple of professionals that I admire. Mark Collard met him early on and uh, really just learned a lot. Mark just has a wealth of information just on the, uh, just on like, he's like a walking, you know, database of activities. And then I've already mentioned Nate Folan. Those are, those are some of the early. So I guess, I guess really for me, those individuals showed me the professional side to it. Like I was doing it from a, uh, I was doing experiential based education from a almost like sight learning, like on an instrument. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I saw this guy play the piano and I started dinking around on keys, you know, and um, probably early on, honestly, I'd probably be so embarrassed if I saw like 18 to 19 year old Jared doing things. Now I'd be like, Oh my gosh, that was such terrible facilitation. Because I was just like, like I said, I'd gone to some camps, experienced it, and said, I want to do that. So I just started doing stuff. We at Paradigm Shift have kind of a maxim uh, that we use a lot, say, know your verb. And we talk about purpose as a verb, that we often get stuck on nouns, that when we ask, especially we work with young people, and we're in the education systems a lot. And so what do you want to be when you grow up? What is your career choice? What's your path? What are you thinking? almost always people answer in nouns. They'll say, I want to be an engineer. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a this. I want to be a content creator. Great. Those are wonderful nouns. We work to change that conversation say, what's your verb? Because in our experience, purpose or fulfilling work tends to line up with a verb more than it does a noun. That instead of saying, I want to be a teacher even, which I think is one of the most noble professions that anyone could ever choose. But instead of being a teacher, perhaps you want to teach. 
instead of being like like you, your verbs probably something like play or even like encourage or include. Like these are powerful verbs because we know statistically, and now to jump into a little bit of the work that I do more often working in corporate settings, I'm working with people and trying to help integrate this into the workplace. Traditionally, it's more accepted. I don't know if you feel this way. You, you maybe totally disagree. But at least in my experience, it's typically more accepted in educational circles than corporate circles. And so bringing it into corporate environments and trying to show the relevance here is I'm like, most of your people are going to leave statistically three years or less. That's Gen Z and young millennials. We are moving. We're changing jobs every three years, give or take. And so within that, I'm like, what is your verb? Helping people understand that it's not that I'm going to find a career that is a noun that's going to fulfill me forever. But if I can align myself with my verb and then fit that verb into the career, I'll probably have a very fulfilling life, a very sustainable career path. So for me, my verb is create. So to your original question, I have found myself when I'm at my best, I create. So when I was a teacher, actually in the classroom, I created. I create a lot of my own curriculum, ideas, props, games. When I was a youth pastor, I'm creating our material. Even now as an entrepreneur, my best is when I'm creating something. And so that's really, I think, the internal that pushed me down this path is because I was just saying, okay, I have to teach X, Y, Z. I'm going to create something experientially to help illustrate this or include new ideas or teach these kids. And then when I met Nate and I went to Project Adventure for a workshop and I met Mark and I started going then, you know, and going to workshops put on by like Chris Cabot or Michelle Cummings and just pursuing these different circles, then going, oh, there are words to this that I'm, there are words to what I'm doing. There are pathways and there are methodologies that I can learn from. So I found those people along the way, but it was really the inner spark that then found people and places rather than the people and places first. I think that what you're suggested is focusing the mission almost focusing on the why and not the what. I think we, yes. get su we get hung up on the what. And I think that people are more likely to want to pursue the career that they're more passionate and why centered around versus then sometimes the what of it. I, I know a lot of people who entered the world of being a teacher only to find out they didn't like teaching. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. they, they'd, they'd miss the point of what the, even the job requirement had, the core concept of the job. They had a misalignment behind what the what and the why and the noun and the verb. And I uh, appreciate that relevance that you had there. Thank you very much. It's been, and, and so, and, and I would encourage anyone listening, probably as, as many practitioners out there, a fun activity is just asking people to try to discover their verb. And we've got some fun, you know, uh, activities that we teach people for it. But the idea is just helping people think in that new way. Uh, one of my favorite stories is I, uh, I had a group of interns that I was working with and I had introduced this verb to them. And because this not only helps those person, but this also helps like, uh, working relationships when you understand someone's verb and kind of like how they're it's a little bit more of how they're wired and how they think because I had someone who was working with us and his verb that he defined was fix that his verb was to fix and I thought wow he was an IT guy and it made so much sense because almost always something would be great and I thought it was good and he would purposefully like break it either literally or metaphorically because his brain is like, well, how can I fix this and make it better? And so I was like, wow, that helps me work with you so much. I'm trying to help. I'm over here trying to solve problems for you as a leader. 
I should just delegate the whole problem. Like I'm wasting my time, energy, and effort. You love to fix it anyway. I'm trying to fix it for you. I just got to give you the broken pieces and let you go to town. And so you can have these light bulb moments, but that's only found, you know, as you know, through experiencing something together, working through this together. And it's been really good work. Now, now that's what I've introducing now. And and on this world of facilitation and classic training, if that's a if that's a spectrum, you know, if you go, if the sage from the stage and guide from the side is a spectrum, I find myself kind of balancing the line in the middle. Like I'm trying to pull more facilitation into classical training environments and seeing huge success uh, just because I, number one, I believe it works and I just love it. And just seeing people go, wow, this was great. What an aha moment. This was a great training and realizing when you're like, well, I actually didn't teach you anything. <laughs> I didn't tell you much of anything. You discovered a lot, hopefully. And we found a lot of energy together but that's just such a powerful moment that I love seeing over and over again. I want to touch on it. I want to like highlight your verb, your verb as create and transition into the thing that you've re- most recently created, which is the new book that you've got coming out uh, titled From 8-Track to Emoji. When we talk about that like generational gap from 8-Track to Emoji, when you created this, what's the, what's the genesis of the book? Oh, my goodness. A great question. I appreciate you asking it. Uh, I'm so in love with this. I love when things are byproducts of what you're doing anyway. You know, there are some times that in business or in work that we set out to uh, answer a question. I love it when when you're answering the question, then a product arrives. That's really what happened with the book. So I, at Paradigm Shift, we work with educational groups, and that's where we started. We work especially with TRIO programs and Gear Up programs. These are government grants all across the country that we love and believe in what they're doing, and we bring an experiential-based component, leadership development component to those programs. And that's, once again, with my background in teaching, that's where we started. And then about five or six years ago, though, I started working with more corporate groups, quite candidly, because it was there, we were building a business. And I believe that leadership is leadership. The ideas, the maxims, whether you're eight or 80, that most of the truths are eternal. It's about how you apply it. It's about how you interpret it and use it. And so I said, we can work with these corporate groups. So as we're doing that, we end up with two very distinct arms that I'm overseeing at Paradigm Shift. And our average age of our educational consultants, the people that are working with with students, our average age at the time uh, of the writing of the book was like 22 and a half years of age because we have a huge summer component. We have a lot of college students who work with us, working with high school kids. You get the picture. So I was having, so I was overseeing that group. And then on a corporate side, our average age was like 52 and change. So I was overseeing these fairly distinct groups of individuals, and I'm right on the line. I was born in 1981, so I am the oldest of the millennials by the book, and I definitely feel myself like straddling that line, like I'm a Gen Xer and I'm a millennial. And really, though, I was raised in a rural, somewhat poor uh, environment in Oklahoma, and so I kind of even lend older, like I lean even toward kind of some boomer sentimentalities. And here I am trying to navigate this as a leader, like front hand. And, and what I saw over and over again was that these groups are not that far apart. Like, like what you're griping about as a boomer and what you're griping about as a Gen Z young person entering the work environment, I'm like, man, you guys just need to talk more. <laughs> like we need to clear, like break through some assumptions and stop resting on this idea. 
it, it was like we allow ageism. Like we've started being more aware of isms, right? Which is a good thing. That's healthy. We're much more aware of racism now, even though we have light years to go. I totally get it. We have a long, a lot of work to do, but we're a lot further along than we were, let's say 150 years ago. We're a lot further along in sexism, even though there's a long way to go. There, we have a lot of work to do. But ageism is almost this one that we have allowed to remain idle or silent, that we've allowed a difference in age to be chalked up to. Well, well, there you go, Boomer, or up oh, Gen Z. Instead of memeing it, let's talk about it. Instead of just throwing it away and saying, like, ah, you know, kids these days, or, well, you know, you're just old and you don't understand. Let's actually wrestle with it because as a leader – as an overseer, I was having to wrestle with this. And so what came up, came out of it first was a keynote. And the keynote then turned into a series of more conversations, more research, which turned into several requests for us to really, as an organization, Paradigm Shift, really talk about ageism in the workplace, which ultimately turned into a book. So the genesis was super organic. I was living it myself. And I was saying, hey, you can learn, we can learn so much more from each other if we will stop some of our assumptions, get in the same room and learn. And that's what we've started doing. So we've seen some powerful results and the book is an outflow of that. You talk about assumptions, right? The assumptions yes. that people made. Oh yes. In the process of you writing this book, did you change your mind at any point? Oh, absolutely. I realized one thing I changed my mind is I'm really older than I think. <laughs> like my mindset, that was one thing. It challenged my own beliefs, my own like internal assumptions. I still feel young. There are days that I feel really young. You know, I don't consider myself old by any stretch. But I realized that every year goes by this chasm between me and the 18-year-old, it's almost like dog years. So one assumption was like, yeah, I'm a young person in the workplace. Not really. <laughs> so I was like, not really. And because of that, uh, another assumption that I probably broke through the most was the impact of technology on upcoming generations. Realizing something as simple as work ethic, get off your phone, some, once again, some subconscious biases that I didn't even realize I had are maybe more nuanced than I would give credit to. Maybe that answer is more symptomatic of our age as a people not just a simple prescription on get off your phone you know what i'm saying or why are you on your phone so much or all of these i mean you know what i'm saying things like that things surrounding technology primarily our phones i found myself really learning a lot and challenging my own assumptions on how people interact with technology in the book, we talk about three upcoming trends or three trends that we see with upcoming generations and then three common biases that we have with established generations. And so in the book, we distinguish upcoming generations, millennials and Gen Z in the workplace versus established generations, Gen X and boomers. Now we're referring to the next generation, Generation Alpha, who's going to be right behind Z, who are, who are hot on their heels. And one thing that we've noticed, uh, one of the biases is called the curse of knowledge. So there's this fascinating idea, even like, like internally, we can feel sometimes like imposters or have some of that imposter syndrome or some of that, you know, why are people listening to me and, and what should I say? But then the, the almost like juxtaposition of that though, is then externally in the workforce, especially this curse of knowledge comes out, is that we get frustrated when people don't know what they don't know at certain ages. And we go, yeah, you didn't know that either 10 years ago. You, it's the curse of knowledge. And we ascribe that to this generation or we ascribe that to like, oh, Gen Z, they don't know how to do this. 
Um, they don't know how to do that. How could they not know that? And when student, it's just a curse of knowledge. And we can't, so it's this interesting like dichotomy because internally we would even say like, oh goodness, I'm still learning and I'm still growing. We might be self-aware enough to say that. But what I've seen, especially in the workplace, is people get frustrated because like, ah, these young people, they don't know how to do this. Or, you know, and it's a curse of knowledge. That's a common biases that we see or bias that we see in established generations. And, And it's very powerful. And that's really what the book is about. It's helping us I say it's a book for everyone uh, because my favorite quote, actually, and it's uh, it's kind of a spoiler alert, but it's really early on. And this is when I was doing some of the research material back when I was, like I said, organically experiencing this for myself. And I was trying to find what are some of these answers uh, because it feels like it feels like there's not that much difference, but people say there is. So how can I bridge this gap? And I found this quote, and it's it's maybe the most powerful quote in the book. Um, it's not from me, by the way. <laughs> I'm quoting someone else. It says, children, they have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in the place of exercise. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents openly and tyrannize their teachers. Children are now tyrants. That quote is from Socrates. <laughs> so that to me is the summary of the book that we don't have a generational issue it's a leadership issue that there will always be generation gaps. Leadership and good, healthy leadership is about bridging those gaps. And now we are seeing big gaps in technology. And so we dive into that, you know, like my children, my children are all in generation alpha. They're going to have a very hard time understanding my childhood. It's going to be, it is, and they do now. I mean, it is completely foreign to them. The fact that they are raised in instant gratification. And so some of the things we talk about there are like upcoming generations are influenced by instant gratification. They're digital natives and they're experiencing emerging adulthood. Whereas previous generations, I remember what it was like to have to wait. I remember what it was like if you missed the movie at the movie theater. Well, guess what? You weren't going to see it for like a year, you know? And then I bet you can remember actually having to go to Blockbuster or if you're from a small town like me, it was just a local movie joint. You know, ours is called movie time and then going to movie time. And even then I didn't get to see it filled because my dad wouldn't let us rent a new release. It was like, nope, we're saving. Nope. Go to the regulars, go to the regulars, five days, five movies, five days, $5. That's what we're renting. Not that new stuff because I know what it's like to wait. And now you bring that into the workforce, something as simple and as trivial as that growing up as children. But my generation, I still, even though I like to be instantly gratified, I do remember a time when we had to wait. Now we have people in the workforce that have never had to wait for anything. They're even, they've been able to hack their education. You know, like I actually went to high school for four years. Now it's like, well, yeah, I'm a sophomore and I'm in two hours and then I go to current enrollment. By the time they're a senior in high school, they're barely at their high school. And then they enter a workforce that has an antiquated system that says, sit here and wait. Either literally we're saying wait or connotatively, it's like, just wait wait your turn, wait for a promotion, wait till we change something. And that's just not a good answer. That is not an acceptable answer. And those are the types of issues that our book seeks to address. How do we navigate those issues? How do we bridge those generational gaps in healthy ways? The official launch is October 31st, Halloween. Uh, We're given a trick, not a treat. So no, I mean a treat, not a trick. (laughs) Wait a minute, October 31st, Halloween. We've been working on this project for about a year And so the launch is upon us, super excited. You can find it on Amazon. You can actually also go to jaredmer.co. That's my personal website. You can find it there. You can find it through ps.company. 
all of the places where you can get books. And once again, it's called From 8-Track to Emoji. So if you just Google it up, From 8-Track to Emoji, you're going to be able to find our book. It's a bright yellow book with a cool looking uh, 8-Track on there. If you're young and listening to this, you should Google up what an 8-Track is. It'll be a lot of fun to, to learn what we used to have to do to listen to music. I'll be completely candid. I'm a speaker who writes. I'm not a writer who speaks. And so this was from my personal experiences, putting some research to it to see what the data says. But then also just saying, this is a topic that should not be divisive. This is an opportunity where we can learn from each other. Every, that's, that's my biggest takeaway that I would encourage anyone out there working with people in any fashion, especially if you are a leader in a workforce, any generational issue is an opportunity for connection, not division. The stories that we have here are fun. People laugh, people smile. When we talk about, yep, I used to have a landline. Uh, I didn't grow up with a cell phone. Those are actual anecdotes that you can share that are powerful. And then on the flip side, if you are open and honest and vulnerable, like I am, I'm just completely candid. When my younger teammates will share something, I just say, I have no idea what that is. I have no idea what that is. I'm a huge Marvel fan. I'm a Marvel nerd. I love it. I watched She-Hulk a couple of weeks ago. They had Megan B. Stallion. Didn't even know she was a real person. Didn't even know she was a real person, Phil. I watched it and I was like, wait a minute. The way they're talking about her, I think she might be real. I asked my team, I was like, hey, is this Megan B. The Stallion? Is she a real person? Megan, and they're like, yes, she's TikTok fame. Now she's an artist. I was like, oh, didn't even know. Man, and it comes back to openness and vulnerability. So I could talk for hours. I'm so jazzed up about it. Check it out on October 31st. Google it up from 8-Track to Emoji. My name's Jared Murr. You can get it all those places. So uh, please check out all of the information. I'll stick it all in the description of this episode. So if you didn't catch anything, you didn't have time to write stuff down, look at the description and you'll find all the info there. Thanks once again for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, all of those things. And I will see you on the next one. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try Thanks for giving us a good pass, guys. <laughs>